This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and it is number two of the series dealing with the epistle to the Hebrews. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture and until this we get through with it we shall be reading consecutively through the epistle to the Hebrews naturally at this meeting. If those of you who are listening care to switch off for a little while and join with us we shall be reading this evening Hebrews 1 and 2. In our first study, we were occupied mainly with seeing the epistle as a whole. It starts and it ends by one great statement that God hath spoken. And that could well occupy us for the rest of this evening. The wonder that the great God could stoop and use the language of men, and see to it that it should be put on record, and then watch over it and preserve it, so that each one of us this evening have got in our own tongue a fairly good translation of what God has spoken. But we dare not spend time like that, we must mention it, and we must pass on. We also noticed in the structure of this epistle that it has not a central point, it is rather an ellipse, an oval, and it has two foci. And one is an exhortation to go on unto perfection, and the other is a warning about the alternative of drawing back to perdition. Two words, perfection or perdition. Now what, how are we going to assess this epistle? I think we'll let the apostle at least tell us what he called it by looking at chapter 13. When he comes to the conclusion of this epistle, he just says to those to whom he has has written, um, verse 22, I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. It's a word of exhortation. Well now, you don't exhort a person who is dead in sin. The only thing that is possible with him is the preaching of the word of salvation, God giving him grace to put out the hand of faith. An exhortation is rather to a person who's already started on life's journey, but needs a little help or a little encouragement, and perhaps a little warning. To further see the character of this epistle, you notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, Holy brethren. Now, the writer of this epistle could never have addressed an unsaved person as a holy brother. The very fact that he says, holy brethren, suggests to us that he's speaking to those who are redeemed, but he has a word for them with regard to their subsequent walk and witness. Or again, partakers of the heavenly calling. Nobody is by nature a partaker of the heavenly calling he must already have passed from death unto life. Well then you will find as you go through this epistle that one after another Old Testament characters and Old Testament types are set aside. Take for instance as a a, a hint the words that we get in chapter 1 verse 11 They shall perish but thou remainest. 
and they also wax old as doth a garment, that thy years shall not fail. Why does he introduce the passing away of creation? What purpose does it serve? I think it's this. He was going to say to these Hebrews, I know just how you feel, for I've been there myself. You are beginning to realize through the revelation that God has given and the teaching of his spirit that many of those things that you thought were eternal are going. You think of your priesthood, separated by God, sanctified by him. But he said those priests are mortal, they can't continue by reason of death, and their work is never done. You think of the great sacrificial system, but you've come to see, and this book says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. You think of the magnificent tabernacle that was built by the specific order of God in the wilderness, but it's got carnal ordinances, the Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not then made manifest. See? He's saying all those things that meant so much to you are now evidently passing away. Will you look at the end of chapter 8 to see this word wax old? He's speaking in chapter 8 particularly about the old covenant and the new. So he says in verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. That's in contrast to writing them on tables of stone, as you remember. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And verse 13. In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So he says, creation waxes old. And that would give the Hebrews a little bit of a start. But that the covenant that God made with their fathers was waxing old would not give them a start. It would pretty well paralyze them. But he was preparing them. Now what was his great saving clause all the way through? We come back to chapter 1. Supposing heaven and earth is going to pass away and perish. He says, but thou remainest. Supposing they're going to be folded up like a vesture and done with, but thy years shall not fail. And we get to the last chapter, and we see the end of their conversation, which is Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, and today, and forever. There's his story. He said, while I can tell you that Christ remains, you can face the fact that the old covenants failed, you can face the fact that the sacrificial system is gone. You can face the fact that the priesthood wasn't sufficient. You can face the fact that everything can go. But until I come and tell you that Christ has failed, we're still on the right side. So whether we are Hebrews or whether we are Gentile believers, that's a truth we could hang on to, isn't it? If he remains, what have we got to worry about? We start worrying when we begin to to wonder whether he too is going to be among the things that pass away, but not so. So that is encouraging. Well then, we have two key words. But before we look at these key words, we'll acquaint ourselves with the general disposition of the subject matter of Hebrews 1 and 2. And I think it's obvious that it's not possible for us to contemplate 
completely giving an exposition of Hebrews 1 and 2 this evening. There's more in it to claim our attention for more than one of these evenings. Now, when you look at the top of the chart, first of all, just in the largest analysis, God once spoke by the prophets. But this hasn't been written to tell us that. That is only to be the basis of an argument. Because these Hebrews knew that that was their peculiar privilege. When Paul raised the question in the epistle to the Romans, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Much every way. Chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. And in the Old Testament it says, what nation has ever been visited by God as you were? giving him your law with all the majesty of Mount Sinai, giving you a written statement that none of the other nations ever had anything like it. So, he doesn't really start off telling the Hebrews what they knew. He was telling them something they knew in order to lead them to something they hadn't quite realised. He said, you magnify Moses, don't you? And it's right. Our Saviour said, Moses in whom you trust condemns you. If you don't follow out his teaching... And the glory of the teaching of Moses is that it pointed to Christ. You remember he said, The Lord God shall raise up a prophet like unto me, him shall you hear. And so to believe Moses is to expect this one. Well, he said he's come. And not only Moses, but the prophets. They all pointed down the age to this coming one. So he says, God spoke by the prophets, but now he has spoken by his son. We've got to go into that question a bit more intimately lately, uh, later. But first of all, just the alternative. Once many prophets, at last his son. And then it speaks about that son of his in the verses that follow. His glories. And one of the peculiar things that is mentioned about him is that he is not only the son of God, because it's going to mention in these two chapters the angels. And you know that in the Old Testament one of the titles of the angels are sons of God. So much so that the uh, Jews who translated the Bible into Greek 300 years before Christ they altered the words in Hebrew 6. They didn't put sons of God they simply put angels straight away. But this is a son in a peculiar way. Not like an angel. He is called the first begotten. Verse 6. His peculiar character is given in verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. If we stop there, we could be challenged. You could say, oh, but it does say. It says that at creation, all the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Ah, but he said, I haven't finished. Unto which angel did he ever say, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He is my first begotten. You see, over and over again, it's a begotten son. That means a son who has a father. No angel like that. And of course, ultimately, we get the link in chapter 2, this son of his, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. It's that sonship that's in view. The man, Christ Jesus, 
flesh and blood, like we. And then you'll notice how it's linked together with him in uh, verse 10 of the same chapter 2. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons notice it bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he that sanctify and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What a strong emphasis there is that this sonship of Christ is not to, to be spiritualized. He's not a magnificent angel. He's a begotten son. He was born of a mother. He lived as a man. He had blood that could be shed. That's the son that's spoken of here. So we have now the next statement. He has two titles. The apostle who wrote this quotes from the psalm, verse 8, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He early said in verse 6, And let all the angels of God worship him. I don't know how you feel about it. I don't know whether you would hesitate. But even the angels of God are to bow down before this son of his. And then he calls him God, and then he calls him Lord in verse 10. Well, I'm only telling you what the scripture said. I leave it with your conscience. Thy throne, O God, and thou Lord in the beginning. That's the Son who walked this earth and through whom God has given his last word. Don't you see the argument coming in the parable? He first of all sent this servant, he sent that servant, he sent the other, he treated this one and they beat that one. Last of all, he sent his son, saying, they will reverence my son. That's the position we're in, friends. No further revelation is given by God and no further revelation can be expected. By sending his son, he said his last word. This word, this world has had its last word given to it. The tragedy is that they treated his son as they did. The mouthpiece of God. His name is the Word, the image of the invisible God. He came and spoke the words that God had given him to speak to the world, and they gibbeted him. Well, and nevertheless, by the mercy of God, some of us have believed him. So we have his name, God and Lord. And then it tells us a thing which we shall have to examine a little bit presently. He was made so much better than the angels. Now, outside of this passage and not realising its context, you might say that's a strange thing for the Bible to tell us. If this son of his is what this scripture says, that he's the heir of all things, he created heaven and earth, well surely he's better than the angels. But he doesn't say that. He says he was made better than the angels. And this is in contrast with chapter 2, which says, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. See, he was made a little lower than the angels. He wasn't lower than they. He was infinitely above them. But he was made a little lower than the angels when he stooped to be a man. Well, now as the man, Christ Jesus, he has been raised from the dead and ascended and sat down to the right hand and that man is above angels. That's the point. In himself, the creator of heaven and earth, we don't need a Bible to tell us that he's better than the angels, but this is the mediator. 
This is the one who came down and assumed human nature to walk this earth and died. He went lower than the angels. He's above them. We've got to look into that a bit more intimately still. Now we see chapter 2 and how it balances. Once more he's back again. God once spoke through angels. Oh, what a lot of angels that are about this book, aren't there? Angels all the way through this chapter. Well, that's because it's Hebrews. How many times does Paul speak about angels in Romans or Corinthians or Thessalonians? Or hardly ever speaks about them. But this is full of them because the whole of Israel's history is accompanied by angelic ministry. From the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right up through the wilderness, through the days of the kings, right into the Gospels and into the Acts of the Apostles, so long as the people of Israel are a nation before God, they have angelic ministry. And then it stops. We've got nothing to do with angels. No angels are mentioned with regard to our calling. But these, yes. So he's reminding them that they once, as a nation, were under the superintendence of angels. It says, therefore, we ought to give them more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, how shall we escape? Well now, what word was spoken by angels? I think I'll have to turn to the two passages so that those who are listening to this recording may have their minds jogged as to where they come. We mustn't assume. So we'll go to Galatians chapter 3 and then to Acts 7. First of all, Galatians chapter 3. We'll read uh, verse 16, chapter 3. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as a many, but as a one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, so we are dealing with the law that was given at Mount Sinai 430 years after the promise made to Abraham. See, cannot this annul that it should make the promise of none effect? For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Well, then he asks the question, well, wherefore then serveth the law? If the promise of Abraham goes on quite independently of whether you keep the law, whether you break it, well, what was the law given for? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So scripture definitely says that at Mount Sinai, angels were the ones that mediated and gave the law to Moses. Now if you'll turn to the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 7, you'll see that Stephen, in his speech just before he died for the faith, tells them the same thing. So we've got a double witness the seventh chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. This is where he brings his sermon to a conclusion. He doesn't say firstly, secondly, thirdly, brethren, and in conclusion, but he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, 
as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom we have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So there's two statements in the New Testament that the law was given by angels. Now he says, if the word spoken by angels are steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, how are you going to escape if you turn away from the Lord? He says, if every transgression receives a just recompense or reward through angelic ministry, what could you expect will happen to you if no longer speaking through angels? But now, it first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him by signs and miracles. So again you see how solemn the fact that God has spoken at last through his Son, once through prophets, once through angels, now through his Son. And then we have another emphasis upon this Son of his, not his glories, as we have in the first chapter, but his sufferings. That's for the reason why he came. His sufferings in the second chapter. And you read there that strange expression, verse 10, that the captain of their salvation was made perfect through sufferings. Now there are two words which we have to consider sometime or another and I think the sooner we do them the better because they'll keep on coming. Two words that demand very careful attention in this epistle. The one I've already mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. How can we um, think about Christ being made perfect? When the angel announced his birth to his mother, he said that holy thing which will be born of thee to be called the Son of God. And there is evidence in the scriptures that from his infancy he was holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. At the age of 30, heaven opened over his head, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A little later on he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and the heaven opened again and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when at last he went up before the tribunal of men, Pilate found no fault in him, Herod found no fault in him, the centurion looked at him and said, of a truth, this is the Son of God. How can that one be made perfect? Well, he could never be made perfect in our sense of the word because that would look as though he was improving. And so we've got to face this word, we'll look at its meaning and we'll look at its usage. First of all, let's take a line from chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, then there's a bit in brackets, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? There's a question for you. Well, he says, you see, this law that God gave, 
never was given to bring these people to perfection, whatever perfection may turn out to be. The Levitical law couldn't do it. Well, look at the law in general. Not merely the ceremonial law associated with priesthood, but the law given at Mount Sinai. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. So it is again. The law made nothing perfect. The priesthood made nothing perfect. Well, now let's have a look at the sacrifices because they're associated with them. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, here's the word again, nothing, never. This is God writing about his own law. He never intended that anyone should be made perfect by the law of Sinai, by the priesthood of Aaron, and by the sacrificial system. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. And in verse 14, But by one offering, he hath perfected forever, oh, here it is, them that are sanctified, what the law could not do, says Romans 8, God did by sending his Son. And here's the same thing again from another point of view. Christ is the answer to all God's problems, I say it reverently, and all ours. When I say God's problems, how was God going to devise a scheme whereby he could be holy and righteous and yet forgive you and me? He did it. And the answer was Christ. And so we've got it now. This exhortation to go on unto perfection. Before we go to that one, let's turn the page to chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and whatever you do, don't you think that this means we've got a lot of spirits all hovering around our meeting? We're not going to turn any lights out. And that's a degradation of the word witness. People who go and stand or sit and watch a football match are not witnesses. They're only spectators. But a witness in the New Testament, is the Greek word for a martyr. A martyr is a witness. Of course, they may be martyrs when they're treading on one another's toes, but that's an insignificant reference. You see, these are not people sitting, looking on. These are people who witnessed and died for their faith. It's the whole of those in Hebrews 11. Abel, the first one, died for his faith. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Look at them all bearing their witness in Hebrews 11. Now, he says, look at all that lot I've just told you in chapter 11. Now I'm going to tell you about one in chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking off. The word apo is here, not translated looking away from all these others unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, we've got the word author in chapter 2. Uh, there it is, that written in green, Archegon, the captain of our salvation. That's the word, the author. And the word finisher is the word perfecter, the word we're looking at. So Christ is the captain that leads you in and the perfect of the lead you on. 
lead you in, lead you on. Going on is the idea of going on unto perfection. Now we've got the figure of a race that's introduced, and that is important. At the risk of repetition, so that we may all see it, I'm going to put on the board the root of the word, perfect, and then we'll add one or two words to it so that you'll see for yourself that it's got this distinctive meaning. I've just put three words on the board. Tele. Telephone. Telegram. Telescope. And the thing that unites all those words together in television, of course, is the word distance. A telegram is a letter that you can write at a distance. A telephone is an instrument by which you can speak at a distance. A telescope is an instrument that you can see at a distance. And that's incipient in the word perfect. It doesn't mean getting better and better. It means starting a race and continuing until you touch the tape at the end. Let the Apostle Paul, who wrote Hebrews as far as I know, give you his own exposition of this word in his last epistle to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. Now, that's not the word that means a military battle. This is an agonistic term, our English word agony, coming from struggling and wrestling and racing in the Greek sports. I have contested a good contest, the word agon. I have finished my course, dromos. Dromos. We've got the word hippodrome. Hippo meaning the word horse, dromos meaning the word course, so we have a race course where horses run. I have finished my course, I've run the race, I've touched the tape, henceforth a crown. So come back to Hebrews 12. Let us run with patience the race. Now that word race in Hebrews 12 and that word fight in 2 Timothy 4 are one and the same word. Ago. Both the same. Looking unto Jesus, the captain and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't you see, there his very example is, that he endured, overcame, and has been crowned. Well, you run. He's exhorting you to follow him. Well, now there's another very... A uh, pointed passage, and one we should have to deal with very, very gently and very, very carefully when we come to chapter 5. I'll just bring it in here. Verse 7, chapter 5. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, Yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. I won't venture on this, because it ought to be dealt with much more carefully than time will permit now. 
But this refers to Gethsemane. But here we have the word, he was made perfect. Now we'll look at chapter 5 and 6. He says that in verse 11, I have many, th- uh, many things to say to you, and they're hard to be uttered. But they were hard to be uttered, not because Paul couldn't speak or Paul couldn't write, but because you couldn't hear. I suppose you realise that it's very difficult for a person to speak if people won't listen. Well, it takes two to, for anybody to speak, but you must have two, because if nobody's here at all, you're only making a row and a noise, it's not speaking. So he says, you're done of hearing, therefore it makes it difficult for me to speak. And then he gives them a little word of exhortation for when for the time ye ought to be teachers. Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk, and not a strong meat. What's this? Oh, he's changing his figure. He says, you see, you're babies. You're babies. And instead of growing up, you're still having baby's food. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Now that word full age in the margin is the word perfect. It doesn't mean to say that when a person reaches 21, he's perfect in our sense of the word. But it does in the Greek sense of the word. I mentioned, I mentioned in another meeting that if you lived in the days of the apostle and you were friendly with your neighbours, you might have received an invitation to attend a party because their son had now reached the end of his life. Well, of course, if you were living in these days and then went back there, you might send them a, a condolence, oh, I'm so sorry your son's come to the end of his life. And I said, what's the matter with them? He's reached the end of his life, means he's become 21. That was the end of his life. That was the goal of his life, to grow up and become a man. Not, not that he came to an end like that. He'd gone on to perfection. Instead of being a babe, he'd become perfect. That's this word, full age. Full age, you see. Now he says, in verse 1 of chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, and that will have to be revised, of course, let us go on unto perfection. So it's something that you've got to go on unto and something that you've got to leave behind. You leave one thing or you go on unto the other. That's the exhortation in this epistle. Well now, that's nearly all, not quite all, the references in Hebrews to this word perfect. How much longer? Oh man. Eh? Well now I think I'll have to leave that with you and I want to give you just a run through another word which we shall find with us all the way through. And that is the word better. Now you cannot talk about better things if there aren't good things. You know that, don't you? We don't say good, gooder, goodest. At least I don't think so. We say good, better, best. So it assumes that there's something good before you can say something better. We are not dealing with the good thing, salvation. We are dealing with the better thing that follows it the life that in some measure is pleasing God. All the time keep that in mind. You do not find the way of salvation in Hebrews. They are assumed to be saved and now they are being exhorted to go on. Now the word better then. Let's run through those in this uh, limited time that we have. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4. The first one is, we've already touched upon it, being made so much better than the angels. We'll just leave it at that. And look at chapter 6, 
verse 9. He's been giving them a rather a rough word here, but he says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Well, what are they? Things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Not salvation. Oh, no, no. But the things that accompany salvation. The walk and the stand and the witness afterwards. That's the better thing. Then look at chapter 7, verse 7. <coughs> this is a comment on the fact that Abraham, the great father of the Hebrew race, he gave tithes to Melchizedek. Well, he said, the one who gives the tithes is recognizing the other one's the better man, isn't he? So he says, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So there was a better priesthood, as you see. And in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. But I didn't finish that verse just now. But the bringing in of a better hope did. So there's a better hope than the law can give you. Better. And verse 22, by so much was Jesus made the surety of a better testament or covenant. The better one is the new covenant. But see these words now they're coming. That's better. This is better. All associated with him. Chapter 8, verse 6. But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of the better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And if anyone doubted just now that I was right to say better covenant in Verse 22, when it says better testament, well, the same epistle uses the same word, says testament in one chapter, covenant in the other, so what did to do with it? Well, keep it all one word, because there's no such thing as a testament in the law of Moses. It's a covenant made with God, by God with his people. So we've got the better covenant and the better promises. Then we'll look at chapter uh, 9, 23, speaking now about the sacrificial system and the tabernacle. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, that could be used as a, a little bit of a contradiction. Better sacrifices are referring to the sacrifice of Christ. But the next chapter says, he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Why does it say better sacrifices in the plural? Well, if you cover the last Saturday in the month, we are still dealing with figures of speech, so I won't tell you. Uh, we'll now come to chapter 10, 34. Pity of it is this recording takes all those bits down, friends. All be held against me in evidence, I dare say. Chapter 10, 34. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that in yourselves you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Better. And chapter 11, 16. Speaking about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all those who became pilgrims and strangers, but now they desire a better country that is unheavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Chapter 2 says he was not ashamed to, to call them brethren. Isn't that lovely? Both moving in the same direction. And then we have in verse 35 a very important one. Women receive their dead raised to life again. 
and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may, might obtain a better resurrection. So there's a better resurrection for some people than for some other people. Now then, we ought to start all over again and put up in front of you the parallels that are obvious between Hebrews and Philippians. But we have to do it. And we shall find in Philippians there's an out-resurrection which is associated with a prize and here's a better resurrection which is associated with a crown. Well, that's another thing we've got to do then. So there's plenty more in front of us. But we'll go on with this study first. Verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Here's the two coming together now. They are made perfect. They're associated with the heavenly Jerusalem, the spirits of just men made perfect, and that's the better country and the better thing which has been provided for those who walk in these ways. Now the last reference is chapter 12, 24. And this refers to uh, the martyr, Abel. I think we ought to now uh, look at verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. This is the similar word to the first begotten in chapter 1. This is this company which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now then, it said in chapter 2, How shall we escape? Let's read that. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not, who refu refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So he's answered it. When we write sometimes we forget, don't we? And we never finish our letter until we've dropped it in the box and we say, oh, have you never done that? When he was a man superintended by the Spirit of God, he put in the chapter 2 a question, how shall we escape? And he's gone all through this and he says, you won't if you turn away from him that speaks from heaven. This is my son. Hear him is the added words on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we are now shut up to Christ. Oh, blessedly so. Blessedly so. But there's no other voice we hear. No other word will be spoken. God has spoken. Strangely enough, friends, he's spoken his last word. He spoke through those lips, the words of salvation and life, and he's given all judgment into the hands of the Son, and all judgment will be pronounced by him too. So you see, we've got a very wonderful theme in front of us, when we come back again, God willing, next time, to look a bit more intimately at this second section, Hebrews 2, 5-18, to where it brings before us once more the blessed characteristics of the one who was so high, who stooped so low and little lower than the angels that he might bring many sons to glory. Now, we'll just conclude with our study there. I think we've just done as much as is possible within our time. We've seen that it's a word of exhortation urging the believer on. We see there's a goal in front to go on unto perfection. We've sensed a little bit that the perfection is the running of a race and the continuance and the enduring and the not falling on one side and fading like they did in the wilderness. 
And then we found that in associating with that better thing, with that perfect uh, condition, God has continually said there's a better thing. So there's a better city, a better country, which is a heavenly, and even a better resurrection for those who endure. Now, all that was written to Hebrews. It wasn't written to you as members of the body of Christ, Gentile believers. You've been sitting just listening to what God has said to somebody else. But what a blessed way of learning. Because you could now say to yourself, but he says it all to me. From my point of view, as I've said earlier, the epistle to the Philippians is to us what the Hebrew epistle was to them. The epistle to the Philippians is running a race, the prize of the high calling of God. He says, not as though I were already perfect. Oh, he's got it all there, you see, but in different terms and addressed to Gentile believers. So before this series is over, we should have to institute that comparison. But let that suffice as evening. Let these words sink down into our hearts. That God who once broke the silence and spoke to the fathers by the prophets has at last, and it's called the last days, 2,000 years ago so far as this part is concerned, the last days are over so far as this is concerned, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And there's the solemnity of giving heed to such a messenger who's come with such a message and who has vindicated it and substantiated it not by words only, but by giving himself a ransom for many.